0: this is a new angle a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around montana i'm your host justin angle this show is supported by first security bank blackfoot communications and the university of montana college of business hey folks welcome back and thanks for tuning in my guest today is chad dundas novelist journalist and podcaster chad earned his mfa and undergraduate degrees from the university of montana And has published two acclaimed novels, Champion of the World and The Blaze.
1: That has been very fulfilling and very fun and like a very eye opening kind of like steep learning curve kind of career path for me. It's just so hard to do that kind of art and make a living
0: on it. He's covered sports for prominent outlets such as ESPN, The Athletic, and The Associated Press. In 2020, Chad and his brother Zach teamed up with another sibling pair. Erica and Leif Fredrickson, to produce Death in the West, a true crime podcast. Season one went deep on the infamous murder of Frank Little. And today, we're going to learn more about season two, available now at all the places. Chad, thanks for coming on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So where did you grow up and what did your parents do?
1: I grew up here in Missoula, Mm -hmm. Uh, went through the public school system in the late 80s and 90s, which was kind of a jumble back in those days, every school that I went to felt felt like it either closed or transitioned to being a middle school or an elementary school. So I went to darn near every school in town. Wow. And made the uh, rounds. Yeah. And then graduated from Hellgate High School in 1996 and went on to get a bachelor's degree in journalism here at the University of Montana. And then a couple years later went back and got an MFA in fiction also at the University of Montana. Uh, my mom ended up being a Uh, Juvenile court case manager for the district courts. So she worked in that field for a long time. And then my parents were divorced. My dad moved to Kalispell, where he owns a shipping supplies company now. And my stepdad is an accountant.
0: So you are this kind of multimedia renaissance man in many ways. Uh, You know, you've got your novelist, you've got this podcast out that we're going to talk about, you do sports writing, you have a podcast about MMA. Give us the sort of potted bio of, of how you got into this type of creative work. Yeah, it's kind of out of necessity,
1: to be perfectly frank. So like I said, I came out of college in about 2001. And back in those days, we all thought that we were going to be newspaper writers. Sure, <laughs> And that was kind of what the entire curriculum, journalism curriculum at the University of Montana, which was a great functional education just about writing and also like how to be a journalist, but at the time, like we all thought we would go on to be, you know, beat writers or columnists or something for, for a daily newspaper. And I did do that for a while working at both the Missoulian and the Missoula Independent for a stint. Uh, but in the ensuing two decades, that industry has gone through so many changes. And in many ways, that career path has ceased to be for yeah. a lot of people, myself included. On top of that, I guess I always knew that I kind of, kind of wanted to try to write fiction. But that is another thing that is very difficult to actually earn a living doing. So sort of out of necessity, I've had to become a jack of all trades and a master of none of them. But to have all of these kind of like different buckets that I can go to satisfy myself both creatively and career wise, but also like literally just to make money. Yeah. So like it's, it's, a, it's a multi-stream monetization <laughs> theory for me at this
0: point. At what stage did you decide on graduate school and in and, and, and that path?
1: I did graduate school in 2004 to 2006. Okay. And then after that, worked a little bit at the Missoulian, but had kind of getting been getting into mixed martial arts coverage on the side as sort of like a niche. So at this point, I've worked at ESPN, NBC News, or NBC Sports, I should say, Bleacher Report, uh, The Athletic, I'm probably forgetting some, but it's just been sort of like one after the other thing. And then, you know, after my latest layoff, which was at the athletic in 2000, June of 2000, I sort of decided that I'm going to try to do it independently because the jobs are at this point, few and far between. And even when you land one at this point, it feels very tentative.
0: So MMA is an interesting sport in that it's it's emergent, but it's also sort of speculative, as you say, like these, these media houses kind of go all in, like you said, build out a team and then maybe pull back. What about the sport is intriguing to you? And then you know, why do you think it is a little transient with these bigger media organizations? I think
1: it's a fascinating sport for a lot of different reasons. You know, at the most base level, I think just athletically, physically, it's a very interesting thing mm-hmm. because it's this melting pot of martial arts at its essence. It, 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 In its genesis, it called together a bunch of people from different disciplines, basically with the mission statement of trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. Because for thousands of years, you had all of these traditional martial arts that had these theories for what they, how they were based and what their techniques were and how they worked and et cetera, et cetera. But there had been almost no real free-form, realistic testing ground for that sure and so the the history of martial arts in a way was kind of stagnant for like Thousands of years and then mixed martial arts comes along both in japan and america in the early 90s And it it went through seemingly a couple centuries of evolution within about two decades Just put everything on fast forward and at this point The sport that exists today doesn't look anything like the thing that was invented in 1993 In america, so just from like a sheer physicality standpoint I feel like it's fascinating. In addition to that, it's a very young sport and so mm-hmm. it has all of these problems that sports more mainstream sports like baseball, football, basketball went through a century ago.
0: Structure, regulation, business model, all these things. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Labor relations mm-hmm. and so like watching all of that kind of happen in real time to me is as a reporter is kind of fascinating because I'm essentially a nerd for those kind of stories. So to that to me makes is it adds another layer that I think is, is super interesting. And on top of all that, it's a very grueling combat sport yeah. where people are suffering injuries and they're sustaining brain damage for lack of a better term. And n- none of that at this point is all that well understood. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of data and study that has gone into boxers, but in mixed martial arts, the sport itself is only about 25 years old. So they are just now like starting to figure out how this the sport will affect the athletes later in life the kind of problems they're going to have what they can do to treat them if anything and so there's this entire kind of like frontier of brain science and understanding and work that's being done which on some levels at the the personal level with the actual fighters is heartbreaking yeah and on other levels like in this in terms of the science is fascinating
0: mm-hmm. well and it fascinates many people i mean the viewership is going up and up At a time when some of the, you know, more mainstream sports are sort of football in particular under duress about player injuries and head injuries and so forth. Yet at the same time, it seems like the viewer wants, you know, more of a gladiator type of viewing experience.
1: There's kind of like an unfortunate reality, I think, with a lot of fans of combat sports, both boxing and mixed martial arts, where there's in some ways, a lack of empathy from some people because yeah. I think they look at the sport itself and they, they think to themselves, well, you were a, a professional boxer or you were a professional fighter. So of course, naturally, you come out of this with these lifelong debilitating injuries and you knew the risks going in. So like, I don't, feel that bad for you there is another an entirely different subset of fans that is very empathetic and and struggles morally with their support of the sport and what they should do about it and all this other stuff so it's there's there's a diversity of opinions but in some ways you're right like the fans they thrill to the sort of uh, gladiator nature of it they want to see knockouts they want to see exciting action and they frankly don't want to think about any of the far-reaching effects you know that the athletes are going to suffer
0: of course. And so you have podcast in this space and you probably still do, as you said, independent freelance journalism. Tell us about the podcast. Where can we find it?
1: Uh, yeah, the, the MMA podcast is called the Co-Main Event Podcast. I do it with my colleague, Ben Folks, who also is a longtime MMA journalist who sort of out of complete happenstance i met at the university of montana when we were both going to graduate school together he continues to live in missoula so 10 years ago we started this mma podcast and we continue to do it and you can find it on all of the podcast platforms that you that you know itunes and spotify and everywhere else it comes out every monday and so
0: at some point you found the time to squeeze into uh really good novels were these like side projects you just were tinkering away with? You said you always wanted to write fiction. Yeah. How, did, how did this sort of fit into the portfolio?
1: I mean, in my heart of hearts, I always kind of wanted to be a fiction writer by trade. Like I mm-hmm. really want wanted that and continue to still kind of want that to be my full-time job. So I went to graduate school in fiction with the stated intention of trying to be a novelist and have since written two novels, which were both published by G.P. Putnam Sons, which is part of the Penguin Random House group. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first novel, Champion of the World, came out in 2016. And my second novel, The Blaze, came out in 2020. That has been very fulfilling and very fun and like a very eye-opening kind of like steep learning curve kind of career path for me. Again, like it's just so hard to do that kind of art and make a living on it. For a lot of really specific ways about like how they pay you and how it it all kind of works out. So I love to do that. I want to do more. I'm doing another book now. I'm writing another book. Uh, But it's the kind of thing that you really just have to do because you love it. Because if you start figuring out how many hours you've put into it as compared to what you're going to get back in terms of actual compensation... It'll make you want to quit. I would love it if that was my full-time job. But at this point, it's just sort of like an artistic passion of mine.
0: Sure. Well, let's talk about Death in the West. Sure. So season two is out right now. Folks can get into that. But I want to spend some time on season one because that was my entry point to the the series. Um, On the surface, it's a long-form investigation of the murder of Frank Little. But it's about so much more than that. First of all, let's talk about the genesis. I mean, this is a project with your brother and then another brother-sister team, the Ericsons. Talk about how the team came together and how, you know, you hatched the idea to study Frank Little and and tell these longer form stories in in narrative form.
1: All four of us are Montana natives. So we Mm -hmm. all grew up here. Leif and Erica have family from Butte. Zach and I also have family from Butte. So we've always felt a little bit Connected to Butte, even though we grew up here in Missoula, and I think just because of our personalities and the things that we're interested in, we have all been kind of fascinated by the unsolved murder of Frank Little, who was a union organizer who was lynched in Butte in the early 1900s, in 1917. And it's a very uh, sensational murder story, a very kind of like a gripping mystery that all also has its tentacles in all of these different, much larger cultural forces that were prevalent at the time. And so I think actually it was my idea, I shudder to say at this point, that I would kind of like went to them and I was sort of like, Leif is a historian. Uh, Erica is a journalist. My brother is a longtime journalist and newspaper editor and now works for a a travel books company called Wild Sam. And I am a, a journalist by trade also. And I've done all this kind of podcast work. So I was like, we should do. A long-form history and true crime podcast about the the Frank Little story, and I think at the time I probably pitched it to them like, "It'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> We've we'll, we'll heard do, that before. We'll do it on a lark. Like we'll probably get some sponsors. We'll make some money. It'll be a, it'll be great, and we will get to indulge our uh, lifelong fascination into this case." And so we did. Uh, and again, it was uh, an amazing experience. I'm very proud of the finished product. It does take a very wide-angle approach to that time and the story itself. And the the response to it has been incredibly good. People love it. I think that we all had enough fun that we then wanted to turn around and do season two, but it also turned out to be a, another huge learning experience and a, and a ton of work.
0: So let's talk about some of that learning in particular. I mean, you probably entered it with some romantic notion and some probably historical notion of, of Frank Little and yeah. the role he's played in, in Montana politics, culture, labor movement, etc. But what were some of the key kind of new learnings for you in that project
1: yeah just about the the subject itself like frank little is this guy who has been a very singular and long lasting presence in montana history but you know we didn't know that much about the guy to be perfectly honest like you read accounts of him through the lens of montana history and they all kind of like regurgitate or repeat the same few facts like he's yeah, this guy. It, one of the
0: facts that's overlooked is and I learned it through the podcast is how little amount of time he was actually yeah. here.
1: Yeah, he was a, an organizer for the industrial workers of the world. And his job as an adult was sort of he like traveled around organizing all of these different laborers in various places. And then right at the end of his life, he got called to come to Butte in the summer of 1917, where they were having a major and like very tense copper workers strike, miners strike. And so he came to help organize the miners, and ultimately he was killed here. But he was only here for about 14 days. Mm-hmm. And so his his appearance and death in Montana history is very brief. And so you read these accounts of him in what are primarily Montana history books, and there's just not very much inf- information in there about Frank Little, the person. And so one of the very eye-opening parts of doing season one was to, to – Get more into his personal story and both meet his great, great grandniece, uh, Jane Little Botkin, who is a historian in her her own right, who has done a lot of work in fleshing out everyone's understanding of him as a person, reading her very good, very kind of exhaustive uh, story of his life. A book that she wrote called Frank Little in the IWW and coming to understand this person in a more fully realized way, who was always had been more of kind of like a symbol in Montana history. And on top of that, kind of like coming to understand that many of the things that we thought were true about him or many of the things that were repeated over and over at the time and then in Montana history turned out to be wrong. And so part of the the season one of Death in the West is exploring those kind of realities of this guy's life while also connecting him to these bigger forces that were at work around World War One and the the workers movement and things like that in the early 1900s.
0: We'll be back to our conversation with Chad Dundas after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is University of Montana President Seth Bodner, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with multimedia journalist Chad Dundas, about his captivating true crime podcast, Death in the West. Well, the series is fascinating, and you know, I learned so much not only about Montana history, but just sort of how these sort of narratives persist in the culture. And like you said, you know, we, we sort of have come to know these things as truths and the actual stories behind them are oftentimes much different yeah and i think the same would probably apply to season two the investigation of the skyjackings and db cooper in particular there's all this mythology around that and legend and lore tell us about season two without giving too much away because we want folks to go listen right away
1: yeah season two is out right now so people can go find it again at all of the podcast platforms where they like to listen to their podcasts In season two, honestly, like I think we wanted to scratch a similar itch that as season one, but just in a very different time period in a very different milieu, like we wanted it to uh, feel different and sound different and have kind of like a different texture to it than season one did. But at the same time, we would be, again, taking a very wide angle look at a story and exploring as thoroughly as we could the cultural forces that that surround one of the great. Myths of the West, and in this case, that mythology was DB Cooper, the uh, the famous skyjacker who uh, leapt out of a plane in 1971 over Thanksgiving weekend after uh, demanding $200,000 in ransom money from the airline, parachuted out of this plane and disappeared, and has since become one of the kind of like towering figures of the mythology of the West. We wanted to look at another story that was a lot more concretely documented about a different skyjacker who pulled off a very similar crime to D.B. Cooper. The only difference was this guy got caught. And so we wanted to juxtapose the myth of D.B. Cooper with the actual man of this other hijacker, Richard McCoy. And we kind of wanted to explore... Continue to explore the mythology of the West, which we had done in, in season one, just in a different time period with a different framing device.
0: Yeah. So let's let's just sort of drill on a couple things there. And, and one thing that I had no idea of was how just prolific and prominent and frequent these skyjackings were in the 60s and 70s. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So in the middle part of the 20th century, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s primarily, flying was just a very different experience for yeah. people. There was a lot less security. Airlines were uh, bending over backwards to present flight, commercial flight to Americans as this luxury experience that you could go you know, fly to a different, faraway location that you never would would have been able to go to before, and you could have a nice
0: meal and get a cocktail, and everybody would be it dressed up. It did kind of glamorous. Yeah, my, was, my childhood memories of flying were like it was it was this glamorous experience, right? Yeah.
1: And at the same time, because there was such little security, this whole new kind of crime, skyjacking, was invented and took hold and eventually became kind of insanely common there, you know, in, in the late sixties and early seventies, someone would skyjack a plane in America on the order of about once a week or even more. It was yeah. just, you go back through the news reports and it's just constant, constantly in the news. People were constantly doing it. There was a political bent to a lot of it. Like a lot of the people were sympathizers with the Cuban government and they would want to hijack a plane to okay. go to Havana kind of to impress Fidel Castro. But then there were other domestic skyjackers who were just doing it to get money. So it was kind of like a, a diverse array of people who were involved in it. People would kind of deal with it like, an annoying but also kind of amusing sidetrack on their vacation. Like our plane got skyjacked and we had to go to Havana for eight hours. We and got then, diverted.
0: Like, right. Like the high winds diverted us to Havana. Right. It's like just an annoyance.
1: It was not at the time viewed as something that was particularly unsafe or even particularly, you know, out of the ordinary. It was just a thing that happened. And it's very jarring to go back and look at all of those news reports from the 60s and 70s. And reflect on how things changed over the next 50 years. But yeah, it was a very strange time in American history. And like at this point is referred to by people who study it as the golden age of skyjacking, which is kind of funny to think about that that was even a thing that happened.
0: Let's, Let's sort of drill on that a little bit because a theme of the American West is that we romanticize and create all this folklore around criminals. Whether it's a bank robber or or a gangster or, or whatever, like we kind of put these people on a pedestal of a sort. What, what do you what do you think that is? What does that tell us about society?
1: You're right that it's very strange that we do that, um, but I think that it fits into a very important cultural identity of the West and sort of like how we view ourselves mm-hmm. as sort of like rugged individualists who. Do what needs to be done and and like we'll buck the system if we feel like it's the right thing to do. Whether or not that's ever been true is a different conversation altogether, I think. But it does open up the possibility that we look at a person like D.B. Cooper, who we we see as this maverick who took this risk and uh, stole a bunch of money from a large corporation and then essentially got away with it. We look at that person and we think it's fun to fantasize about doing that or wouldn't that be great or like this is a person that that actually had some positive qualities that we want to celebrate and whether or not any of that is true of course we don't know because we have no idea who he was and so it's it's a very strange thread that runs through a lot of western culture that we do that with with outlaws and people who have broken the law for one reason or another
0: i mean do you think it's because some of these outlaws you maybe there's not a clear or singular victim you know nobody is in, is specifically hurt
1: yeah, no, I think that's a big part of it. Like uh, both of the skyjackers that we focus primarily on in, in season two, D.B. Cooper and Richard McCoy, as far as we know, they were both first time skyjackers. They had never done it before, but they were both very adept at it. It seemed like they were very good at it. And they were kind of, for lack of a better term, gentlemanly about it. Like you talked to the people who were witnesses and they had a very affable, respectful, almost attitude toward the the flight crew and the other passengers. And they didn't, it seemed like they didn't want to hurt anyone. They just wanted to get the, you know, their demands met and get this money. And then they both parachuted out of the plane. But like the people who were involved in the thing kind of testify that they they never really felt in danger, which is, mm. I think, an important part of it. And, you know, you talk to people about D.B. Cooper and they, they invoke James Bond and he was nicely dressed in a suit and like kind of -of matter-of-factly and politely went about committing this ransom of the entire plane, but then when he gets his money, he just kind of vanishes into thin air, and so it's easy, I think, to romanticize that kind of story of the sort of gentleman outlaw who then disappears from the face of the earth, and we can uh, imagine, perhaps, if he lived, went on to, to, you know, spend the money and have this this great time with it.
0: So you've done beat reporting, you've done longer-form journalism, you've been a novelist, or you are a novelist, now you've written for podcast narrative podcasts. Uh, talk about you, you know your approach to writing in these different domains. What have you learned about your own writing? What kind of writing is, is comes easiest to you? What do you enjoy the most?
1: I had a wealth of great teachers throughout my my studies both in journalism and in fiction, all of them here at the University of Montana uh, which was which was a great place to go into either of those subjects back when I was here. But, uh, you know, I like to say that I learned the most about writing from journalism, I think. And it was just through the rigors of actually doing it every Mm -hmm. day. And it it instills in you a very functional and in some ways straightforward. But in other ways, I think I could argue kind of elegant writing style. Like I would like to think that in my own writing, I have like a narrative speed and that it's kind of propulsive and that I don't do a lot of kind of like frilly – description or anything like that it is kind of like a journalistic more bare bones style and that gets the reader from point a to point b and hopefully we have some fun along the way so uh they are all kind of connected in my mind like fiction and journalism and and even this like podcasting stuff a lot of the storytelling aspects of it are uh both structurally like narratively kind of the same they're they're all sort of related and the 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 tenets of storytelling, I think, don't change from medium to medium, uh, but the the actual like writing and work can be a little bit different from one, from one thing to the other. In terms of like journalism and fiction, I sometimes I like to say that fiction it's like you're painting a picture. You go with a blank canvas and you can paint. You, there's no rules. So you can just paint mm-hmm. anything you want, and at the end, the picture can look however you want it. Journalism, I would argue, is no less artistic, but it's it's got a more artisanal quality. Like it's more of like you're an artisan and not an artist it's more like you're building a table. Like the table can be beautiful and it can be as fancy as you want it to be. But at the end of the day, it's gotta work as a table. You gotta be able to have dinner on it. It's gotta be level. You have to be able to pull chairs up to it. So it has to have this like kind of functional strength. It's like a different sort of between art and something that has
0: some industry to it. Final question, Chad, talk about working with your brother. Is this the first time you worked creatively with your brother? I mean, I guess on a, like an actual
1: joint venture, it kind of is like, we have always had different pursuits together. Like we were in the same punk band for a lot of our childhood. And so we've always kind of been creative together. We have similar, uh, fields that we've gone into for work. We were both writers. Like I kind of got into doing writing and journalism because I was three years younger than him as a kid and I idolized him and wanted to be just like him and he did fiction and journalism and I wanted to do that stuff too. So a lot of that stuff I kind of owe to him. Uh, But we continue to be just like great friends. We never really had any kind of like sibling rivalry or anything like that. We've always had really similar interests and we're similar people. And so like it's really great to work with him. And like I tricked him into being the host of the show (laughs) like because He was a thespian in high school. And so he has this kind of like great voice for the podcast and he does the delivery. When you get into the rigors of actually making a season of the podcast and the guy who has to sit down and read the scripts and like you can't do a thousand takes, you got to kind of nail it on the first couple. It's, it can be a grind. And honestly, man, he nails it most of the time. I'm really impressed with the job that he has done becoming a voiceover actor in some ways. But yeah, it's been incredibly fun. And I was like, like, if anything else, that's the reason like, I, why I would want to keep it going is because I love to work with him and with uh, Leif and Erica.
0: Well, that's wonderful and heartwarming. We can find Death in the West wherever you find your podcasts. If you wanted to you know, plug something else online, where would you send folks?
1: Uh, you can go to our website, deathinthewestpod.com and find all kinds of information about us and the project. And you can listen to the show there and all kinds of other stuff. You could follow us on Instagram. I believe we are at deathinthewestpod there as well to see pictures of the reporting prog- process and you know different fun image stuff that doesn't translate to the podcast, but we sure. want to present anyways available, available over at Instagram.
0: Well, it's awesome work. Thanks for telling us all about it. You bet, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hanson. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer bto jeff amet and john wicks made our music editing by nick mott and jeff meese is our master of all things sound thanks a lot and see you next time